Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 21, starting at verse 18 here. We're going to go to right around verse 42 or 43. We won't finish the chapter. We're going to be talking about Jesus' teaching in the temple on the Tuesday of Passion Week and also some events on the Monday of Passion Week, the last week of his life. Starting in verse 18, Matthew says this, Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, that means returning to Jerusalem from Bethany where he spent the night on the Mount of Olives, and that's Monday morning, early in the morning, Monday morning as we know from Mark, early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. At once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Now, we have some harmonization problems with the other Gospels. First of all, the Gospel of Mark shows that the disciples saw the withered tree on Tuesday on the way into the city. And as we've just said, this was early in the morning on Monday, as we know from Mark also. The answer is is that Matthew compressed the two accounts, as he often does. This is according to my NIV study Bible. He emphasized the immediacy of the judgment, the fact that the fig tree withered. He just did mention the fact that it was the next day that he withered it before they discovered that it was withered. So we jump ahead here in verse 20. When the disciples saw it, that was the next morning, and they said, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Now, the fact that Jesus was hungry on this Monday morning as he set out from Bethany is a classic place in the scripture where we can prove Jesus's humanity. He was a human being. He got hungry. Jameson Fawcett and Brown said he probably stayed up all night praying, which I doubt because I think he's a human being and needs to sleep. <laughs> I don't know. Nobody knows. Now there's a question here. When Jesus saw this lone fig tree by the road, why did he go to it? The reason that could be a problem is, is because it was not the right time of the year yet for figs. It was spring, around Passover time. Summer was the normal time for figs to come in, according to John Gill. So why would Jesus go look for figs on it? Well, probably because there were leaves on the tree. Typically, fruit came in before leaves, so if you see leaves, you assume fruit. And Jesus was hungry. Maybe fruit. he was thinking that the tree was an early producer. Got got ahead of the summer harvest, and it produced some... It hadn't, as it turned out, but... It did not produce fruit, as it turned out, but it was not illogical for Jesus to go look for fruit there. Now, when he found out there was no fruit there, he used it for a teaching moment to make a, an analogy with the fig tree and, the, and the, the Jews of Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem who were bearing no fruit at all except fruit for death. And so then he curses the fig tree. So that withered fig tree, which I assume withered by the next Tuesday morning, by the, the next morning by the time the disciples got there, that withered tree was emblematic of the Jews. They weren't producing fruit for the people, and they were just about to be cursed themselves. Jesus cursed the fig tree just as Israel was cursed in AD 70 when the Romans came in and wiped out Jerusalem, burned it to the ground in AD 70. Now, Jesus didn't explicitly make the application to the Romans, but I don't think there's any question that's what he's talking about, the withering of the fig tree. He's using it as a teaching moment to teach the, Jews, the, the disciples that even though the Jews were going to persecute him, eventually they were going to get justice. Now, the disciples were amazed. What were they amazed at, as they say in verse 20? Well, they could have been amazed at the fact that Jesus cursed the fig tree. What's he cursing a fig tree for? What's he got against the fig tree? Is he angry at it? That doesn't make any sense. 
Or it could be they were amazed that he had the power to be able to curse a fig tree. They didn't see the wither until the next day, of course. But when they saw it, they could say, wow, how could a fig tree die that fast? But I don't know. After all the miracles the disciples had seen, they would still be surprised at the withering of a fig tree. Maybe seeing miracles never got old. I don't know, but I don't think that's what they were amazed at. John Gill says they were amazed that the tree withered so quickly, but as I pointed out, they didn't see until the next day that the fig tree had withered, so it could have been a whole day, and that's not such a, something to be amazed at so much. I think what they were amazed at is, why is he cursing the fig tree? What's the big deal? Now, let's look at the parallel passage in Mark 11, 20-23. This is the next morning, Tuesday morning, early in the morning, the next Tuesday morning, as they were passing by, they were coming back from Bethany, back in Jerusalem. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. So here we see the cursing of the fig tree and the instruction about moving mountains by faith are tightly tied together. And I'm going to make the point later when we get to it in Matthew here, is that what Jesus is saying is, you have got faith to withstand this rabbinic, Judaistic, legalistic, Pharisaic, Sadduceic mountain that you're going to, that's going to be opposing you and trying to kill you like they've killed all the other prophets and like they're going to kill me. But don't you worry, you can have them thrown into the sea. I think that's what he's talking about. This fig tree, a little detail here in verse 19, is said to be by the road. That means it was in a public place. The fig tree didn't belong to anyone, so anybody could pick fruit off of it, and that's what Jesus did. All right, so let's go to Matthew 21, verse 21 through 22. Jesus answered them, I assure you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if I tell you, if, even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And there you see Jesus' time together the faith that it took to wither the fig tree is the same type of faith it's going to take to move a mountain. Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, if you say to that mountain, it will be done. And if you believe, you will, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, that whatever you ask for, that means whatever you ask for in the will of God. Of course it means that. It doesn't mean you can ask that, oh, I wish I could fly and hover over the football game to watch the game while it's in progress as I hover in the air, tread air. No, it doesn't mean that. And when he says move this mountain, he's obviously speaking hyperbolically. He doesn't mean literally you're going to move a mountain. But what he's saying is if when you get into the will of God, you can do anything. Anything in the will of God you can do. There's a condition, though, if you have faith and do not doubt. Jesus expected you to believe. I just looked up six places in Matthew where I used a uh, concordance and looked up the places where it says, Oh, you of little faith, there were six of them. Jesus expected his disciples to have faith. He talked about it all the time. And, of course, the hyper-faith people have abused this and abused it. And, and But we don't want to get into the doubt and unbelief camp because Jesus expected us to believe. We don't want to overreact and go to the opposite extreme. Now, there are two ways you can doubt. Jesus says, do not doubt. If you don't doubt, you can move the mountain. There's two ways to doubt, as John Gill points out. You can doubt that God wants to do the thing, or you can doubt that God has the power to do the thing. Either way... God's not going to do that thing. Who was that, the, 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 the sick man who said, I believe, are you, if you're willing, you can make me cleanse. I think it was the leper in Capernaum. If you're willing, you can make me cleanse. He, he didn't know whether Jesus cared enough for him to do it. 
He didn't seem to doubt that Jesus had the power to do it. So there's two things we want to know here. We want to know what God's will is so we can know that God wants to do the thing. That's the first thing you got to do when you believe. And the second thing is you got to believe that God has the power to do it. Well, you would think the God who created the universe has got the power to do all kinds of miracles. Jesus says this mountain, he was referring to not any mountain, he was referring to the Mount of Olives, which is right behind them there. Now, David Chilton, the theologian, the Preterist theologian says it refers to the corrupt rabbinic Jewish state, the mountain. And he's got all kinds of ways to prove that. Some of that stuff's over my head. I'm not theologically deep enough to understand all that. But I do mention it in case you want to check that out at some time to, to make the connection between the Jewish state even more tight. But I believe even without all the, the scholarly scaffolding in order to prove it, I think just from the context, he just withered the fig tree. And that the fig tree is obviously referring to... And as we see in these parables, he's getting ready to teach on the next morning, on Tuesday morning, all the parables about how God's taking the kingdom away from the Jews, that all the context is he's teaching the disciples that the Jewish state is going down. It's going to be cursed. It's going to be destroyed, as we'll see. We'll get into some of these parables. So that fits the, the context. Moving the mountain means moving the, the persecuting Jewish state out of the way. Matthew 21, verse 23. When he entered the temple complex, the temple complex refers to the set of women. courts there. They had the court of the Gentiles, the outer men. court, and the next court inward was the court of Then they had the court of As you got further and further in, most people think that the that when, when he entered the temple complex, that was on the outer court, the Gentile courts. It doesn't matter. The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, the rabbis were extremely exercised over this question of authority. You remember they asked the same thing of John the Baptist. By whose authority are you teaching these things? They wanted some rabbi or some political Jewish political authority to, to say, it's okay if you're doing this. Jesus, of course, did not have the sanction of the chief priests and the elders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes because they hated him. So they're coming up and they're giving Jesus a hard time. Let's read the synoptic parallels of this incident. Mark 11, verse 27 through 23, they came again to Jerusalem. This is on Tuesday now. As he was walking in the temple complex, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Then answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's pretty much what Matthew says. And so I'm not going to read Luke. I think Luke more or less says the same thing too without, without any extra, extra details here. Now, the, who asked him, the chief priests, those, that's the leading figures of the priesthood. They tended to be on the Sadducees' side. And the elders, those were non-religious people who were on the Sanhedrin, the political leaders. They don't mention the, in this verse, the scribes and the Pharisees aren't mentioned. Now, what things were they referring to? By what authority do you do these things? What things? Well, Jesus had driven out the buyers and the sellers of doves and pigeons from the temple area and overturned the money changers tables he had restored sight to the blind he had caused the lame to walk and he was preaching the kingdom of god now a lot of this we're not going we're not talking about because a lot of it's in the parallel version in john and some of them in luke mark and uh mark and luke also but if you put all the Executed. accounts together you can see jesus did a lot of healing 
a lot of teaching in this last week before he was. Earlier, not only did John the Baptist, but not only was he asked by the, the religious leaders, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus, early in his ministry, was asked the same thing. John 2, verses 18 through 21. So the Jews replied to him, What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? This is the, begin the very beginning of his ministry. The part that was in Jerusalem that's in John is not in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus answered, Destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This sanctuary took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So in the first instance, he said, you want authority? I'll show you authority. I'm going to rise again from the dead. Of course, they didn't understand that. They thought he was talking about the physical temple. But that was the authority he had. And Jesus had plenty of authority even at this point in, in, during the Passion Week because of all the miracles he had been doing. You want authority? By what authority are you doing these things? Have you listened to my teaching? Have you looked at the miracles? Have you noticed how I know the Old Testament backwards and forward and I'm fulfilling every jot and tittle of it? What's the matter with you dumb coughs? Now, why were the Jewish leaders so obstinate, so angry, so stupid? Well, they were worried about their authority. They were worried about their prophets. In other words, power and prophets. Money and power. Isn't that what it always is with religious people? They wanted to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people because they were scared that Jesus would start a revolution. People were proclaiming him Messiah, the king of the Jews, and they didn't want the Romans to come in and kick them out of their places of authority. They didn't bother ex to examine the truth or falsity of Jesus' doctrines or the truth or falsity of his miracles, or if the miracles were true, where did they come from, the devil or God? No, well, they'd already said the devil, but... He, they knew he would beat them hands down on this. If they started that again, Jesus has already proven in the last three and a half years of his ministry that he could shut them up in a minute, even with a answer. Jesus could have been a good lawyer or a good politician. God forbid that he would have done something like something horrible as that, but he would have been good at it because he could answer everything they threw at him. He shut them up with unanswerable questions. He's getting ready to do it right here, too. Now, here's the nature of the trap that these chief priests and elders were setting for Jesus. If Jesus said his authority was from God, then they would accuse him of blasphemy. If he said his authority was from men, the leaders would say, no, it's not. We haven't given you any authority. You don't have any authority from men. So either blasphemy or rebelling against the Jewish officials in Jerusalem, either way, Jesus would have been nailed. But now it is at this point that Jesus really exposes the iniquity and hypocrisy of his opponents. He comes right out after him and from his teaching from then on is very obviously opposed to the ruling big shots in Jerusalem, as we'll see. And this, of course, instigates them to crucify him, which they did in just a few days. Notice how completely unintimidated Jesus was by his enemies. Completely unintimidated. He didn't care what they were going to do to him. He knew they were going to kill him. I guess there's something about knowing that your life is doomed anyway that gives you a certain courage and a certain freedom to say what you want to say. You, got, you have nothing left to lose. Matthew 21, verses 24 through 26. Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Where did John's baptism come from, from heaven or from men? They began to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the crowd because everyone thought John was a prophet. The Luke parallel says they were afraid the crowd would stone them, actually. So it was a volatile situation here, and Jesus, he had them right where he wanted them. Notice, first of all, he didn't answer their questions. Did it come from 
uh, by whose authority do I do these things? He didn't answer their questions. He asked, he asked questions in return. He turned the argument right back on their heads. And the object lesson we can get from this is we are not constrained to answer the questions of evil people who accuse us. We don't have to. Jesus was absolutely under no obligation to answer their stupid questions. All over the country he had done miracles proving he was the Messiah. He had proved his authority was God from not from man. He didn't need to walk into their trap. So he just I'm not going to answer you. You don't have to answer. You don't can't force me to answer you. And then he asked them a perfectly reasonable question. So they had no grounds to complain. You're asking me, says Jesus, I'm a prophet. You're asking where my prophetic authority comes from. Well, let me ask you where another prophet's prophetic authority came from. John the Baptist. You notice that the problem with John the Baptist is his situation was exactly the same as Jesus's. The leaders denied that his authority was from God, but the leaders feared him because they knew the people did know his authority was from God. The people knew that his authority was actually from God. Jesus was in the same spot. So here you have the classic case of moral authority overcoming guns and bullets, at least for a while. Notice when the chief priests and elders said, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, heaven is the Jewish way of saying from God. It's authorities from God. It's kind of a euphemistic way of saying it. So when Jesus said, where did John's baptism come from, from heaven or from men? What he's saying is, did it come from God or from men, just to put it more directly. Verse 27 in Matthew 21. So they answered Jesus, we don't know where John's authority came from. We don't know. If they'd have been more honest, they would have said, uh, we know it came from God, but we don't have enough guts to tell you because then you'll start talking like you're the Messiah. They knew. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So they took the coward's way out. Instead of saying, we're not going to tell you, which is what they really meant, they said, we don't know and feigned ignorance. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says about this, what crooked, cringing hypocrites. No wonder Jesus gave you no answer. But what dignity and composure does our Lord display as he turns their question upon themselves? They knew, they said we don't know, but they knew, or at least they thought they knew where John's authority came, that he didn't have the authority of the, of the religious authorities. They knew that, but they were scared to tell Jesus. So they knew his authority had to have come from God if, he, if John the Baptist was righteous, and he was obviously righteous. So if they'd have been truthful, they would have said, we won't tell you, but they said, we don't know. They knew. They knew that John, or they should have known at least, that John's authority was not from man but was from God. Jesus is applying his own principle that he gave in Matthew 7, 6. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. Don't cast your pearls before swine, in other words. That is something that I've had to learn, because every now and then I start trying to convince people, and they are not going to listen, and they're hard-hearted, and I realize I've got to back off because they're not going to listen to me. Matthew 28, 21, 28 through 30. But what do you think? Now Jesus is going to give some parables, and they're what I would call anti, anti-Jewish leader parables, anti-Pharisee, anti-Sadducee, anti-chief priest parables, anti-Jewish system parables. Verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons. So this is the parable of the, of the owner of the vineyard and, two, and the two sons. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, My son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. Yet later he changed his mind and went. Verse 30, then the man went to the other son, the other, and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Now, just to make it real short and sweet here, this is a relatively easy parable to interpret. The people who didn't want, who didn't want to go are, as Jesus mentions in verse 32, is the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. They at first say, are you kidding? 
What do I want? What does a prostitute have to do with righteousness? What does a tax collector have to do with righteousness? But later they changed their mind. Well, of course, changing your mind just another word for repentance. They repented, in other words. They believed in Jesus and they went into the kingdom, went into the vineyard. According to the terms of the parable, they went into the vineyard as this son did. So the first son represents the sinners who repent. The second son, when the man went to the other and said the same thing, and the second son said, I will, sir, I'll go into the vineyard, but he didn't go. That's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, the whole Jewish religious and political system that says, hey, we are serving God. We are keeping the oracles of the Old Testament and the temples here, and we're sons of Abraham, and we're Jewish, and we're and we know who Yahweh is. But they don't go work in the vineyard. They don't go work in the kingdom because the kingdom is now Jesus. It's not Israel anymore. It's not the old Israel. It's the new Israel. It's the church. They're not going to go in. That's what that parable means. By the way, I, this John Gill interprets that the way. Adam Clark interprets it that way. And even Wikipedia interprets it that way with no discussion. So there are some other possible alternatives, but I think they're off the wall. So we're going to skip that, save some time. Matthew 21, verses 31 through 32. Which of the two did his father's will? Jesus continues with the parable. The first, they said. Well, of course, he changed his mind and went to work in the vineyard. The first son, they said. Jesus said to them, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. In other words, Jesus then sprang it on them. They didn't know who he was referring to. And then Jesus said, see there? Tax collectors and prostitutes have changed their mind and they're coming into the kingdom, but you're not. You're like the second son who won't come in. Jesus continues in verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, just John the Baptist, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. So there's the interpretation of the parable. Jesus is saying that God, when he said, which of the two did his father's will? What was God's will? He wanted repentance. He didn't want false profession of faith. The Pharisees were giving false profession. The tax collectors and the prostitutes were giving repentance. Now, notice how fast the Pharisees answered the question. When Jesus said, which of the two did his father's will? The first, they said, no thinking, no deliberation amongst themselves. Jesus asked the question where the answer was sort of in enforced on them you were impelled to make the answer well obviously the guy that changed his mind and went into the vineyard but they didn't apply it to themselves they wouldn't have answered so fast and i guess they were shocked when jesus said hey i'm talking about you guys now this idea of tax collectors being sinners it's kind of scattered through the scriptures here's luke three twelve. tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him teacher what should we do so you see tax collectors were coming into the vineyard into the kingdom luke seven twenty nine. And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. So see, tax collectors had been baptized by John and were coming to Jesus just like Jesus said right here in the temple complex to the, to the chief priests and elders. Matthew 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable. This is another anti-Jewish system parable. There was a man, a landowner, who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. Now, this vineyard had a watchtower to guard the vineyard, especially when the grapes were ripe. This could have been to guard it from animals as well as men. Rabbis had a specification for such a tower. It was, should be 15 feet high and 6 foot square, so it's sort of big. So, I think it's just a detail of the parable. Uh, Adam Clark says it refers to the temple looking out after Israel. Maybe. I don't think so. Matthew is taking this, or Jesus is taking this from Isaiah 5.2. Let's read that. Isaiah 5.2 says this. He, the vineyard owner, and in verse 1, by the way, 
clearly says that the vineyard is Israel. Verse 2, he broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it, the vineyard, with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even hewed out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. Of course, the worthless grapes were the Jew, Jewish religious leaders and political leaders. So this was already prophesied back in Isaiah's time. He was predicting the fall of Israel to the Assyrians. Jesus, is, as we get on a little bit further, he's going to talk about the fall of Israel to the Romans in AD 70. So a couple of the details in the parable are taken right out of Isaiah, the wine press and the watchtower. The vineyard owner, that's God, he leased the vineyard to the tenant farmers, that's the Jew, Jews, and he went away. Jesus, by the way, we look in Luke, he's talking not just to the Pharisees here, he's talking to the whole crowd, the people as well as the Pharisees. That fence that the landowner put around the vineyard, I think that's just another incidental detail of the parable, not meant to have any meaning, but... Gill says it refers to the hedge laws of the Jews, all these pharisaical oral tradition laws that were so nonsensical. I don't think so because it says the, well, it says the landowner put the fence around it. The landowner didn't make, God didn't make up those hedge laws the Pharisees did, so I don't know where Gill gets that idea from. Clark says the fence just means divine protection in general. I don't, so I think it's detailed. I mean, Clark even goes so far as to say the wine press stands for law and sacrificial rights. How in the world it does, I don't know. Again, that's just an incidental detail. The point of the parable is, is that the tenant farmers are going to get kicked off the vineyard when the landowners finish with them. Back then, this parable would be familiar to the Jews. Here's the social background. There were large estates in Israel. They were owned by absentee landlords, and local peasants farmed them as tenants. Now, in the parable... The vineyard owner went away for a long time. That's in Luke 20, verse 9. It says he went away for a long time. Well, God went away from the Jews for a long time because he didn't send his sons to collect the fruit or he didn't send his slaves to collect, to, to collect the fruit of the vineyard until now, Jesus' time, and the Jews started, let's say, at Abraham's time, which is about 2000 B.C. So 2000 years, God the Father has been away from Jews, kind of watching, you know, kind of waiting for the Jews to bring forth fruit in the vineyard, and they didn't do it. Not for 2000 years did they produce much fruit for God. There was a minority of people in Israel that always believed in Yahweh, but not many. Matthew 21, verse 34. When the grape harvest grew near, he, the landowner, sent his slaves to the farmers, the tenant farmers who were working the vineyard. He sent his slaves to the farmers to collect his fruits. Now, the slaves stand here for the Old Testament prophets, as John Gill in my NIV study Bible says. Later on, two chapters later, when Jesus is getting wound up right before the Olivet Discourse, which is, which is today, Tuesday, the same day we are, two chapters later, but it's still the same day, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. So Jesus clearly said that Jerusalem killed prophets. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's, going back to the terms of this parable, that, that is what the phrase to collect his fruit means. It means he was gathering his people, his sheep, his believers. So he sent his slaves back to the vineyard to collect his fruit. Matthew 21, verses 35 through 37. But the farmers, that's the that that stands for the, the Jewish leaders. They took his slaves, that stands for the prophets that Jesus sent, that God sent to Israel. The farmers beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. In other words, they just abused the prophets and killed some of them. Some of them. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. So that's the common reaction all throughout Israel, Israel's history. 
kill the prophets, kill the prophets, beat the prophets, abuse the prophets, ignore the prophets. Finally, the landowner got fed up with this, and he sent his son to them. That refers to God sending Jesus, the son, to the vineyard, to the farmers who were running the vineyard. They will respect my son, he said. But, of course, they killed him. Now, here's some passages that show, and I think this is good to go through to, to, to get this in our heads, how much the Jews persecuted the, the prophets of God. Matthew 23, verse 37. I just read that one. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. 1 Kings 19:14. I, this is Elijah, have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, your God's covenant. You have torn down your God's altars and killed your prophets with a sword. Jeremiah 26, 20. Another man also was prophesying in the name of Yahweh, Uriah, son of Shemaiah from kiriath This is a, a prophet you don't hear about too much, but says later that as he was prophesying against, against King Jehoiakim, King Jehoiakim, all his warriors and all the officials heard his words, and the king tried to put him, put him to death. When Uriah heard, he fled in fear and went to Egypt. King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt. They went to Egypt. They brought Uriah out of Egypt, took him to King Jehoiakim, who executed him with the sword and threw his corpse into the burial place of the common people. One more example of the Jews killing the prophets. You remember When we get to the Olivet Discourse later in the day, Jesus is going to mention, he said, they will, they will persecute you from synagogue to synagogue. And just as the prophets, just as you kill, just as they killed the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, they were constantly killing the prophets. Nehemiah 9:26. This is Nehemiah speaking. But they, the Jews, were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets, who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies. So Jesus has just given them a Jewish history lesson when he did it, and he did it in the form of this parable. Here's a minor detail here. The first slave was beaten, the second was killed, the third was stoned. And since there's a distinction between killed and stoned, that stone probably just means stoned, but not all the way killed. Just injured badly. Doesn't matter, it's just a detail. This idea of beating the prophets instead of killing them, Jeremiah 22. So Pasher had Jeremiah the prophet beat him, beaten and put him in the stocks at the upper Benjamin gate. Second Chronicles 18.23, Then Zedekiah, son of Shanana, came up, hit Micaiah in the face, and demanded, Which way did the Spirit from the Lord leave me to speak to you? Hit him in the face. Hebrews 11.36 and others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. Jeremiah 37.15, The officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him and placed him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for he had been made into a prison. Second Chronicles 36.16, but they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. So you see, the Jews had a long history of beating and killing the prophets of God. And this parable summed it all up in a nice little story that the Pharisees could not fail to understand. Matthew 21, verse 38 through 39. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, the tenant farmers remember other Jewish leaders, the son is Jesus. They said among themselves, this is the heir, the heir of the kingdom of God, that's Jesus. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So Jesus here makes a prediction of his death and he lays the blame on the Jews. In parable form, they knew what he was talking about. Now you might say, how can tenant farmers take an inheritance when you kill the son. Well, the Jews had a law that said that if nobody claimed an, an inheritance, that it was uh, up for grab publicly. Whoever got it, got it. So actually, this parable fit in with 
with Jewish law because the son would not claim the property because he would be dead so the tenants could claim it. As a matter of fact, after Jesus died, the tenants, the Jewish leaders, did still claim to own the kingdom. They still claimed that theirs was the kingdom, they had the oracles, and the Messiah was coming in the future. And they are so wrong. It's not even funny. Notice that they said among themselves, the tenant farmers, Jesus is talking here about the conspiratorial aspect of his opposition. They didn't go out publicly and proclaim it to the people. They said among themselves they were going to form conspiracies. Matthew 27, 1, this is during the, at the crucifixion narrative. When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. John 11, so the chief, same time, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, what are we going to do since this man does many signs? So they, they met in secret amongst themselves in dark, at night. In private, in violation of the law, by the way, the Sanhedrin was supposed to meet in the daytime. I won't read the whole passage. You got the idea. So they threw the son out of the vineyard. Well, that was out of Israel. They threw him to the Gentiles. Hebrews 13:12 says this, Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gates. The Jews thought he was so opprobrious, so disgusting, that they executed him outside of Israel so that he would not pollute Israel. Hell, he went outside the gate, all right, and he ended up going to the Gentiles. Matthew 21, verses 40 through 41. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? Now, that was referring to God the Father. When he comes and looks at his vineyard, Israel, and he sees that his son has been killed, what will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him. Well, I said they understood. Maybe they didn't understand because they answered this pretty quickly. And apparently they weren't applying it to themselves yet. So I take that back. He will completely destroy these terrible men, they told him, and leave his vineyard to other farmers who will give him the produce of the harvest. And, of course, that's talking about the Gentiles. Here's some scriptures. Key places where Paul goes to the Gentiles. He went to the Jews first, and then he switched and went to the Gentiles. Acts 13.46, this is at Pisidian Antioch. Then, in Asia Minor, on the first journey, then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, It was necessary that God's message be spoken to you, referring to you Jews of Pisidian Antioch spoken to you first, but since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Big deal there, switching to the Gentiles. Acts 18.6, but when they, the Jews at Corinth, resisted and blasphemed, he shook his robe and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And by the second century, the church was almost entirely Gentiles. So Jesus' parables were completely fulfilled in history, not to my surprise, little harmonization problem here. Two parallels to this parable in Luke and Mark have Jesus saying this. He will come and destroy those farmers and give the vineyard to them. But when they heard this, they said, no, never. Mark, therefore, what will the owners of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give them to others. So the contradiction, the alleged contradiction is... Who said he will completely destroy those terrible men? Matthew says is they said that he will completely destroy those terrible men. And in Luke and Mark, it's Jesus who says they will come and destroy the farmers. The reconciliation of this one is easy. The answer was first given by the Jews, and then Jesus said, yes, you're right. He's going to come and destroy those wicked men. And of course, by then, I would think the Jews knew who he was talking about. Completely destroyed was completely fulfilled. 
completely destroy completely destroy yeah they will completely destroy it all right you have to read josephus and see what happened to jerusalem in 8070 over a million people killed the city left in smoldering ruins when the romans completely destroyed jerusalem at the end of the jewish war in 8070 all right we're finished for this audio hope you enjoyed it we'll take up another anti-jewish system parable at the end of matthew 21 in the next audio i hope you enjoyed this one